Chapter 13, chapter 14, and chapter 15 of 1 Samuel charts the decline of Saul. These are three chapters where we say, see a step-by-step -step decline. Each, each chapter, things get worse and worse for Saul. I asked you last week to think about, I think I did at the end of the hour, what would you identify as the character flaw of Saul's life? And it's hard to, to single out one, I forget who it was, one guy said pride, which certainly is <laughs> But I think there's perhaps something else that is at the heart of Saul's issue, his challenge, his flaw. Saul was the king. According to Deuteronomy 17, the king was to walk by faith. Saul, as the king, was to be the shepherd king of Israel. <clears throat> he was to lead his people by what he did. He was to immerse himself in God's word. He was to meditate upon it day and night. If you go back, we read that, we studied that earlier, a couple of uh, weeks ago, actually. Saul didn't do any, there is no evidence of Saul doing any of that at, at all. So I would say at the heart of Saul's issue, his flaw, instead of being a man of faith, he was a man of fear. He was a man, and when I, when I mean fear, I don't mean he's necessarily cowering fear, but he was a man who almost will develop a paranoid fear. Paranoia is an irrational fear of things. And you start to see it, even here in chapter 13, you're definitely going to see it in chapter 14, and unmistakably you're going to see it in chapter 15. And what happens in this step-by-step -step downward spiral of Saul, and I'm going to give you the, the overview now. <clears throat> Saul in chapter 13, his dynasty, his descendants, will be rejected. He will, In other words, his family will not be a family that will inherit the throne. It ends with Saul. Secondly, you're going to see in chapter 14, the people do not listen to Saul. And that's a remarkable development. He, he tells them to do a whole, there are a whole bunch of things. We'll be looking at that for the, the hours over. And we'll see, here's Saul. He's giving these orders. He's telling these people, particularly in the military situation, and they don't listen to it. They don't do what he wants them to do. And then thirdly, you're going to see he will, be, he will be dismissed as the king. God will reject him as the king. And it's at that point where you, we will read this. I don't think we'll get to that today. But in chapter 15, when I come back in, in three weeks, we will see that the spirit of God will depart from Saul and the spirit of God will come upon David. So these three chapters, chapter 13, chapter 14, and chapter 15, chart the downward spiral of Saul. And then for the rest of the book, because he will be he will die on Mount Gilboa at the end of, of this book of, of 1 Samuel. But the rest of the book will be demonstrating this this incredible flaw in his character. He will he no matter what happens, no matter what God does to him to discipline him, he will not seek repentance. He will not have a contrite heart. He will he will have that heart. That is hardened against God. And instead of being a king who is supposed to walk by faith, Deuteronomy 17, which we studied a couple of weeks ago, he will be a man who is controlled by fear. No leader who is to lead his people, as he is supposed to be the shepherd king of Israel, is to be controlled by fear. 
Do not fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. They're all statements out of the book of Proverbs. So Saul is a tragic figure. He, he is one of the most tragic figures in the Bible. He starts well, but quickly you see this flaw come to the surface. And it's one of the great tragedies of biblical history. Now, I'm not, I'm not sure I remember exactly where we left off because I know we cracked into chapter 13. But maybe I'll start with verse 8. But just verse, verse uh, first uh, seven verses of, of, of chapter 13. The Philistines, now you know who they are. We've talked about them before. They right now are the nemesis of Israel. They are invading constantly. They're doing these punitive raids into Israel at all, at all points. And what they are trying to do as they raid into Israel is they're trying to divide the, the tribes. Remember, there is no centralized kingdom yet. Saul just starts it, but the 12 tribes are scattered in their land grants. They're trying to split and divide these tribes. And so one of these punitive raids occurs in verses 2 through 7. And we saw at the end of that paragraph, 2 through 7, the people of Israel are terrified by the Philistines. So what do they do? If you look at verse 6, they hide in the caves and rocks and holes and tombs and cisterns. So what does Saul do? Verse 8. Now remember, he is the shepherd king of Israel. He is to be modeling for the people faith and trust and dependence on God. He is a man who is supposed to be immersed his mind and his heart in the law of God. I'm quoting again basically from Deuteronomy 17. So what do we see? Verse 8, he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. You have to go back to chapter 10, verse 8. It tells us, Samuel telling him to wait. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. A reminder, just the geography of this, you can see it on one of the maps, like page 7 of your packet. Gilgal is right across the Jordan River. That's where Joshua and the people, that was their first day, they camped at Gilgal before they took Jericho and Ai and all the other cities of the conquest. It was kind of a sacred spot. I think I mentioned last week, it'd kind of be like a Valley Forge or a Gettysburg, a, a place of immense historical significance to the nation. Well, that's where they're gathered, because that's where Samuel said, so I'll go there and I'll come. So Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him, and the him is Saul. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he offered the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Let's stop there for just a minute. Here again, you see this fundamental character flaw, a man of fear, not a man of faith. Should Saul, as the king, offer burnt offerings to the Lord? No. Be formidable there. No. <laughs> the king isn't supposed to do that. The Levitical priests are supposed to do that. They were there. So Saul is stepping outside of his role as the shepherd king of Israel, and he's doing something that he's not supposed to do. Is God going to honor that? Is God going to be pleased with that? No. So what is Saul doing? He's acting out of expediency. He's afraid. He sees the people scattered. They're afraid. So we don't, you know, I don't want to 
make something up here, but based on the character of David, which we will see in, in, in later studies, and based, if you look at some of the other good kings of Judah, like, like Jehoshaphat, Asa, Hezekiah, Josiah, good, good righteous kings of Judah, what, what would they do? They would go to the Lord. Cry out to the Lord. Okay, you know, most of them, these are the these are the military leaders. These are tribal leaders. These are clan leaders. Let's let's gather around and cry out to the Lord. What do you want us to do, Lord? David will say so many times. Here's my situation, Lord. What do you want me to do, Lord? Shall I do this? This is what seems to be the right thing to do. Shall I do? It? What does Saul do? You don't see any of this. He's not praying. So. To take the responsibility of a priest and to lead and offer burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord, it's almost like it's a sense of magical, contrived, circumstantial occult actions. I'm going to force God to bless us. Samuel isn't here. I don't want to wait for Samuel anymore. I'm so afraid, and the people have scattered. If I don't do something quickly, we're going to be overrun. Is that faith? Is that the faith of a leader? Is that the faith of a king? No, it's not. He is acting out of fear and expediency. So then Samuel comes, and Saul went out to meet him at the end of verse 10 and greet him. And Samuel said, what was Samuel? What is Samuel? Way to go, Saul. Thanks for leading. Thanks for taking the responsibility of offering these sacrifice. What does he say? What have you done? Now, I used a little animation. I increased the volume of my voice. I gave some tonal emphasis to key words. That's probably what Samuel did, don't you? He probably yelled, what have you done? He is aghast at what the king has done. He steps out of his role. As instead of acting as a shepherd king, going to Yahweh, asking Yahweh's provision, care, instead of acting as a man of faith, he's acting as a man controlled by fear. Things are out of control. What can I do? That's not what a shepherd king who follows. That's not what a run of Deuteronomy 17 kings to do. He's to go to Yahweh. He doesn't do that. Jim, when we have those uh, crossroads in our lives, uh, we should have, we should go before the Lord with a contrite heart Absolutely. and ask, ask him, God, what Absolutely. do you have me to, to know that we are in his will and not in our own, using our own willpower mm -hmm. uh, to try to do something that we should cry out, and he will be faithful. Absolutely. And, yeah. and, and lead us now, now by the Holy Spirit. And if he puts us into the Word, probably a good place to go, too. If we're really Absolutely. sincerely seeking it. Absolutely. And this is, the, this is the flaw, the tragedy of Saul. Here you see it. If he is the shepherd king of Israel, he should be going to the Lord with a dependent spirit. Everything seems out of control right now, Lord. The people are afraid. They're scattering. They're hiding out in caves and, 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 and tunnels. Uh, Lord, what do you want me to do? This is not what you see. 
And so you, you see a king who is afraid, who's afraid for his person more even than the people. And he's acting out of expediency. So Samuel, what have you done? Then notice, notice Saul's rationalization of what he did in, in verse 11. When I saw that the people were scattering from me, take you to verse 6, and that you did not come within the days appointed, back to chapter 10, verse 8, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. So the three reasons. So, I mean, look at those. The people have scattered from me. It's all about me. The narcissism of a leader. And you didn't come in the days appointed. I waited for you. And Samuel will say, did you wait seven days? Did you wait exactly seven days? Because listen, when he told him to wait. That's a test of Saul's what? <clears throat> test of Saul's faith. He didn't wait. So in a very real sense, Saul seems to be twisting it a little. By the way, Samuel, some of this is your fault. Doesn't that sound familiar? And then thirdly, the Philistines have mustered against us. The third one is reasonable. That, uh, that's where he should have poured his heart out to the Lord. But you don't see that. The first two are not evidence of leadership. And so immediately you step back because of the previous chapter. We saw, hey, he's kind of getting a good start. When he rescues the people at Jabesh Gilead, he, he gives thanks to the Lord for this. And, hey, this guy's starting off well. Next chapter. Uh, there's a problem here. He is to be the shepherd king. He is to lead. He is to model how the people are to look to the Lord as their source of security, the rock of their salvation, and the one who will deliver them, as he did out of the slavery. I mean, they're the things that are developed through the scriptures. You see, none of this was Saul. Verse 12, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. Uh... So I forced myself and offered a burnt offering. Now, how do you respond to that language? I forced myself. Was anyone twisting his arm to do this? Was anyone coercing him into do this? Again, that word. He's acting out of expediency to save his own hide. Because remember, you know, Leviticus 1 tells us about the burnt offering. Leviticus 3 tells us about the peace offering, both of which are mentioned there in, in, in verse uh, 9. These are the most important offerings you know, outside of the, the, the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when the priest went into the Holy of Holies and all that, these were the two most important and regular offerings that the people, be, through the priest, would offer. The burnt offering would be totally consumed on the altar as an atonement for sin. The peace offering would be the consequence of that. Things are now right with God and right with one another. We can enjoy part of the sacrificial meal. 
Nowhere does it say the king is to lead and do that. Priests are to do that. So when he says, I forced myself, number one, that's a lie. And number two, it gives you a little insight into his character. No one is for it, and certainly God is not forcing him to do this. Now you see this man acting out of fear. He, he's, he's insecure in his role, and he doesn't lead the way he's supposed to lead. And the consequence is verse 13. As Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord, your God, with which he commanded you. From then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. What he's really saying there, the command of the Lord was you wait. You wait till Samuel comes. So when he says, I forced myself, when he stepped into the role of the priest and offers the burnt offerings, offers the peace offering, then I don't, this sounds uncommon. I don't know how else to put this. He's trying to manipulate God. He's tying out of a a contrived spirituality, and I mean that very sincerely, a contrived spirituality to force God to act. There's no contrite heart, there's no dependence, there's no faith. There's expediency and a self-serving set of actions to manipulate God. And God says through Samuel, if you would have been faithful, the Lord would have established your kingdom. Your, Your kingdom, your dynasty would be the dynasty of Israel. Verse 14, what's the first word? But now your kingdom shall not continue. Your boys will not inherit the throne. And of course, his primary son, we will read more about him in just a minute, is Jonathan. The Lord, note it's Yahweh, it's in uppercase letters, capital letters. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So we're introduced to this phrase, a man after his own heart, which we will see quite a bit. But the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's Peter's sermon in Acts, where he calls what king, a man after his own heart? David. Can we talk I, about this a second? I'm sorry, yes. The man after his own heart? Does this tell us something about God that we don't normally think about? Because David did a lot of bad things. Yes. So if David's a man after God's own heart, has God done some bad things? Because we know he's perfect. Or, I mean, it's kind of an odd thing. David's a man after his own heart, but David did some really bad things. Does it tell us something, or am I just... No, that's a great question. It's a great observation about about this description of David, because you are right. Now, at this point, we don't know that. We don't even even know it's David yet. We'll soon find out. But we know it's David because of what will follow. And, you know, when you study David, I say, wait a minute. This is a guy who commits adultery. 
says the guy who orders the murder of the husband of the woman with whom he has committed adultery. But yet God continues to call him after his own heart. There's been a lot of discussion about that. There's been a lot written about it. So let's, let's, is all right if I answer his question with a little bit of sure. a funny trail here? Well, remember the heart. Let's start with that first of all. The heart, um, you know, when, when it's used like this description of David, it's not that organ that pumps our blood through our body. It's, it's a metaphor. It, it refers to the center of our spiritual will. The center of of our decision making, the center of 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 the of the of the heart of the human being who who chooses the path of following and walking with God. It's the the man for God's own heart is the individual in Psalm one who chooses the path of following God. But a man after God's heart is also a man that when he sins. Because we will all sin. When he sins, that contrite brokenness of his heart comes to the surface. Followed by a confession, agreeing with the Lord. Following by a repentant heart. So Bill, I think all of that is a part of of understanding a man after God's own heart. God is not saying, a man who has God's own heart is a man who's perfect. No human is perfect. Only Jesus is the God-man is perfect. But with David, that's the thing you see with David that you do not see in Saul. Saul does egregiously horrible things. Never, never in these chapters, they're going to go all the way through chapter 28 of this chapter, this book, never are you going to see a repentant, contrite heart in Saul. You will with David. Even you see it as David is, you know, he's he Saul chases him. We'll see this as we get into the book. Saul chases David around the Judean wilderness for ten and a half years. Ten and a half years he's chasing him. And David is so exhausted with all this. Remember what he does? He goes down to the Philistines for a while. Which is up you can't believe that. And finally he just realized this is ridiculous. And so you see, and you see that after this incredibly repentant heart. And he then says, Lord, should I do this? Lord, should I do this? Lord says, Lord, I'm not sure what are you, I want me to, you want me to do. Lord, I'm not, I'm a little confused here. So there's that, there's a repentance, there's a contrition, there's a brokenness, but he's back in his walk with the Lord, back in his acknowledged dependence on the Lord. You never see that with Saul. Not one time. You see that with Hezekiah. Now I'm going ahead. You see that with Hezekiah. He does some very foolish things recorded in the book of Isaiah. 36, 37, 38. Terribly ridiculous thing. But he repents. And there's that contrite heart, begging the Lord to forgive and restore him to, to his, his uh, state of dependence. So I think, though, it's that, that malleable, spiritual heart that God can work with. There was nothing to work with with Saul's heart. The Bible will speak of that as a hardened heart. So a man after God's own heart is a malleable heart that responds to God's discipline, responds to God's 
God's, God's pointing out the flaws of our character. Okay, Lord, I know that's wrong. In your strength and your power, I am going to get victory over that so that you will be honored and you will be glorified through my life. Never do you see Saul say that. And that's why, that to me, as I study the scriptures, because I've given a lot of thought to that phrase, as I study the scriptures, what pleases the Lord is loving obedience to him, but a contrite, repentant spirit when we sin. Because we are going to sin. How will you respond to the sin when God points it out? When, when, when you read about the scripture and you say, my life is not conforming with the scripture. Lord, I need to change. Or someone pats you on the shoulder and says, you and I need to talk about something. I'm seeing something in your life. Can I help you? And they're the, how are you going to respond to that? Defensive? I'm fine. I don't need you. I don't need God. That's a hard thought. David does not illustrate that. He makes many, many mistakes. But he always comes out of it with that contrite, broken spirit, a repentant spirit. And he grows through this. I think just what you said is an encouragement to all of us because we're all going to sin. Absolutely. On this day forward, we will sin. And he wants us to have the, the contrite heart to confess, to keep it, to keep nothing between us and God. That's right. And, and then I was going to ask you, Jim, on the first part of 14, is that a uh, prophecy at that um, time where it says, uh, he says, your kingdom shall, shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, which describes David in many ways. But then, is this a, a prophecy um, that God is revealing to him? That he kind of knows that there's a man out there. He may not know who he is, but he may know who he is. Well, God certainly knows who he is, but yes. it's, uh, it's, it's making a statement in contrast to your hard heart, Saul, I'm going to seek a man whose heart is malleable, that I can shape and mold. Now, we know that's David. Now, I can jump way, way ahead because there is something else. I don't want to get to it because you really you get to this in Second Samuel. But as you, as you see David's character flaw, which is he has a problem with women. Every time he sees a woman he likes, he takes her. We'll chart that as we get into the story of David later on. Well, it's actually in 2 Samuel. But anyway, and, and that does him in. That, that, that's the flaw of David's character. Tragic to see that. But So David is always the king against all rulers will be measured. Will be measured. You see that as you read into 1 Kings and 2 Kings and even in 1 uh, Second Chronicles, which is an account of just the kings of Judah. They're all measured against King. They'll say the King David will say, and he did what was right, just like the father his father David did, or he did not do what is right in the eyes of the Lord, unlike his father David. David's always the one who met, but David. David had flaws. That David wasn't perfect. And there's a God making a promise to him that your throne, your kingdom, and, and your dynasty will be eternal. You know, you leave the Old Testament saying, Well, how's that gonna work out? Because David's monarchy isn't ruling us. And you go to Israel today, there's no Davidic king ruling the Jews. <laughs> they haven't had a Davidic king ruling the Jews since 586 B.C. 
That was the last time our Davidic king was ruling them. So what's the answer to that? It's King Jesus. So ultimately, this man after God's own heart, ultimately, is a reference to Jesus Christ, who is the king of the Jews. He calls himself that. Others call him that. Sometimes they say it in derision. So, I mean, all of this, that's why, and that's one of the things I'm trying to do here, this, the, the history of the monarchy, which is, we're just starting now, the history of the monarchy ultimately points us to Jesus. Because all of these kings, even the really righteous kings like David, fail. Well, it does make more sense if it refers to Jesus as a man after his own Yes, ultimately. That's right. That's makes right. a whole lot more sense. That's right. Because Jesus, how many times will Jesus say, I delight to do my Father's will? And he will say that in John 5, 19 through 24, when he's talking to the Pharisees, and he talks about the Father loves me and I love the Father and I delight to do my Father's will. I mean, it's just those, those marvelous examples of Jesus in that complex issue of how we talk about the Trinity, but how Jesus is the king who delights to do the Father's will and Jesus will restore the perfect theocracy. When he sets up his kingdom after his second coming and all that stuff that's in Revelation 19 and 20, this isn't going to be a democratic republic when Jesus comes back. It's going to be a benevolent dictatorship of a perfect righteous king who will shepherd his people, which in the kingdom will be the Jews and the Gentiles. State of Israel, no, I shouldn't say the state, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, and the church. And that's those are those marvelous things that we look forward to and that are in the prophetic scriptures. So, I have one more question. Um, you know, um, years ago we, we talked about uh, Genesis. We were studying Genesis. So, um, so God said, let us make man. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He's talking about the Father. The Father is talking about uh, when he says us, Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, right? Well, yeah, you, you have to be careful. You can't prove that. From Genesis one twenty six, which is what you're quoting, but in light of all the rest of the Revelation scripture, the other sixty five books, that plural us, that plural pronoun us, fits perfectly with the concept of God as Trinity, that God is one essence of three persons who differ relationally and functionally, and so it it allows for that. It doesn't it, that doesn't demand it, but it allows for it. In basis, on the basis of all the other revelation of scripture. And so what you see in those early chapters, and we are so blessed because we have the full revelation of God, we see another illustration of love and communion between the members of the Trinity. All right, now, this, so this is step one of Saul's downfall. And whose fault is it? His fault. Now, let me pick up then, uh, verse 15, Saul rose and went from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600. Now, if you go back to verse 3, excuse me, verse 2 of this chapter, there it said Saul had 3,000 men. 
We don't know what happened, but he's lost 2,400 men. He has 600. It's all in Jonathan, his people. His son and his people who were present with him stayed in Geba with Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped at Michmash, and that's uh, that's just a little bit outside of Jerusalem, actually, but that doesn't matter. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Oprah, the land of Shua. Another company turned toward Beth Horon. Another company turned toward the border that looked down to the valley of Zoboim, toward the wilderness. Now, those place names, you can look them up on the map if you want. But what it's telling us is the Philistines in these punitive raids move into Judah and Benjamin, those land grants, in three divisions, three companies. They split into three. What's their goal? To conquer Judah and Benjamin. And the way they're moving, they're going to be successful. So this is an existential threat to the tribe of Judah. This is a very, very serious military threat. Verse 19. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found through all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, a third of a shekel for sharpening. Now, you read all that, but what's this telling us? Not only is the, are the Philistines posing a serious threat to Benjamin and Judah, those land grants, We've also learned something else. The Philistines have a monopoly on the iron trade. Now, if you're an agricultural society, do you need iron implements? But we just read about them. Plowshares, mattocks, sharpening of axes, setting the goads. I mean, you know, goad is spur an animal if you're working the animal. (laughs) This is a very serious existential threat to Israel. Not only these punitive raids into Judah and Benjamin, but the Philistines have a monopoly on the iron trade, and they're forcing the Jewish people to pay for the sharpening of all their implements. Israel's in a very serious situation. Hey, Jim. Yes, sir. It'd be even more than the military side of it if it's also um, sickles, plowshares. This also could affect their ability to even. But that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, this is Israel is in in well, I use the word existential because their very existence, particularly the southern part of the tribe, their very existence is in question here. Because it's not only their farm implements, it's also their military, the swords, their spears, the things that obviously you need to sharpen. So Israel has Israel now is in a bind. And what does Israel need? A shepherd king who will lead them. Is Saul fulfilling that requirement? So far, not really. So what chapter 13 has done is it's illustrated to us, starting at the end of the chapter, working toward the beginning, it's showing us the very serious threat the Philistines are to the existence, especially of the southern tribe, Judah, Benjamin and Simeon. Simeon isn't mentioned much, but they're in that land grant too. There's a very serious threat to Israel. It's a threat to their existence. And what we learn from the other part, the earlier part of chapter 13, the king is deficient. The king is not doing what he's supposed to do. 
And if the king isn't doing what he's supposed to do, and he is not following the Lord, and he is not the Deuteronomy 17 king, will the Lord bless Israel? No. <laughs> so chapter 14 is the second stage in this downfall of Saul, this charting his tragic downfall. Here, Saul's chapter 14, the theme is, the authority of Saul is going to be rejected. Not by God, but by the people. We'll see what happens in chapter 15 after I get back from seeing my grandchildren. Are you with me on 13? Yep. All right, now. Yeah. It sounds like they have no weapons, but Saul and Jonathan did have weapons. That's right. Yeah. For the most part. I'm sorry? How do they fight them without weapons? Well, that's, that is one of the real challenges. What they're going to have to do is capture a couple of Philistine garrisons and get some of their weapons from them. And Jonathan is going to do that. But, it, I mean, this is, if I use existential threat, you know what I mean by it. I mean, their very existence is questionable here. And, it, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's an extremely dire situation. And what the Bible is doing is telling us, they need a shepherd king with aggressive faith in God. David will show that over and over again is Saul. And you're going to see the contrast in chapter 14 between his son Jonathan and Saul. It's a marked contrast. Jonathan is a man of aggressive faith. He's, Saul is not. Uh, and uh, when Christ returns, there's some statement, and I can't remember right now what this word word. They will take their bow, uh, one of the, these instruments, and oh, beat their swords into plowshares. That's from Isaiah. Yeah, okay. that's the beginning of Isaiah. Yeah, well, Isaiah is picturing the coming kingdom of the Messiah, which is all through the book of Isaiah. But in that in that context, when he establishes a kingdom, the people will beat their swords into plowshares. So they will take, you know, the the metal and so on that is used to, to, to make swords and, and beat them, transform them into ag agricultural implements. Because there'll be no, the, the point in that passage in Isaiah is there'll be no need for war anymore. Which, in light of what's happening in the world right now, it's kind of an exciting thought to think of, of what's happening. All right, can we get, get in chapter? We have a few minutes yet. Can I do this? Would it be all right? <laughs> I don't know why I'm asking your permission, because I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, his armor bearer, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. And that gets to your question. That's what they need. But he did not tell his father. Now, that's a very instructive statement. Why do you think Jonathan didn't tell his dad what he was going to do? Yeah, I mean, it's an illustration of a contrast between Jonathan and his dad. Dad, Saul has manifested some fear, not trusting in the Lord, not modeling the spiritual leadership he's supposed to do. As you're going to see in just a minute, Jonathan models an aggressive faith. And the way he talks about the Philistines, he will call them in verse 6 the uncircumcised Philistines. These are people outside the covenant. 
Why would we be afraid of them? So it's an incredible contrast between the son and the father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah. And remember, Gibeah is his hometown. Saul is from Gibeah. Gibeah is in the east side of the land grant of Benjamin. Uh, this is, in effect, the capital of the kingdom. It's hard to talk about that. There's nothing centralized yet. But that's where he lives. So he's in Gibeah in the pomegranate cave. Or some translations have under the pomegranate tree. Now, I mean, just the contrast. Saul's in Gibeah, either under a pomegranate tree or in a pomegranate cave. It means they're shaped like that one. And where's Jonathan? He's about to attack a Philistine garrison. Which one is which one is the man of action? And I mean, just it's really it's it's, it's quite remarkable. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahiatub, Ichabod, the brother, the son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord, and Shiloh, wearing an ephod. Now there's a long list of son of, son of, son of. It's saying that he is in the priestly line. He's in the piece in the line of Eli. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Verse 4, within, within the passes by which Jonathan sought to grow to the Philistine garrison was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one is Boaz, Boaz facing south. The other one is Sinai, which is facing north. The crag rose from the north in front of Michmash and the other south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Now, man, just as that statement that we read, this illustrates faith. Because Jonathan is seeing the Philistines the way God sees them. They're not my covenant people. They do not bear the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision. So to say the uncircumcised is a term of derision. Why would we be afraid? Of these outside the covenant. It may be that the Lord. Notice it's Yahweh there. It's in capital uppercase letters. It may be that Yahweh will work for us. For nothing can hinder Yahweh. From saving by many or by few. What do you want to put after that statement? Extraordinary faith. (laughs) This isn't out of the mouth of Saul. The king. This is out of the mouth of Jonathan. The son. And it, you almost said, well, I wish the roles were reversed. I wish Jonathan were king. But he's not. Saul is. But you see in Jonathan faith. You see in Jonathan the right perspective about the Philistines. You have in Jonathan a man who is evidencing aggressive faith in a time of existential threat to the nation. The armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. And Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over the men. We will show ourselves to them. If they say to them, he's setting up a test, a test to validate which one of these will show us what God wants us to do. If one, they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we'll go. For the Lord has given them into our hand. I would like to repeat that. For the Lord has given us 
into the hand, them into our hand. They'll be assigned to us. So he's setting up, Jonathan is setting up a very objective, tactile, measurable sign of God's favor. He's talking to his armor. We're not going to act impulsively here. We're not going to act unwisely here. We're going to set up a test. And my faith and trust in the Lord is going to help us to make the decision about what we should do. Verse 11. So both of them showed themselves to garrison the Philistines. The Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan, his armor bearer, and said, come up to us and we'll show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up. Notice the land. Notice the language. Come up after me. For the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel, the covenant people of God. Don't you long to hear Saul say something like that? But you don't. So this contrast between the fear, the paralyzing fear of Saul under a pomegranate tree in Gibeah, and Jonathan attacking one of the garrisons, but attacking it not impulsively, but with measured victorious faith. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan. The armor bearer killed them after him. The first strike with Jonathan and his armor bearer made, they killed 20 men. It's within, as it were, half a furrow's length of an acre of land. It's, it's, to me, it's so interesting how specific the author is here. He's telling he. They killed 20 men in in a length, furrow's length. That is the half of what a yoke of oxen can plow in one day. The author is being very specific in the amount of territory this involved. And there was panic in the camp, in the field, among all the people. Is this Israeli people or Philistine people? It's Philistine. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. Don't miss that, the earth quaked. God responds to Jonathan's aggressive faith by adding to the panic an earthquake. This whole area, and you probably know this, but Israel is on a major fault line. It, the history of Israel is just earthquake after earthquake, after major earthquakes. So that it's right on the fault. That's what the valley that starts up in Hula Valley and then down to Sea of Galilee, down all the way down to the Dead Sea. That's a fault line. Raises up Central Asia, goes all the way down to Africa. So that there's an earthquake, but it's at that moment the earthquake intensifies the panic among the Philistines. God is fighting for his people. But God is fighting for his people in response to the faith of Jonathan. And God acts when there's aggressive faith. God acts when there's aggressive faith. Now what is, let's see, I think we can get this done. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked. Now, you know what that means, don't you? On the wall, every city had a wall around the ancient world. So up on, if you ever play chess, on the rook, up on the tower, 
you have watchmen looking out to, to, to you know, make sure there's any information coming, but also in the time of war. So he's got men up there. Watchmen of, God, of Saul and Gibeah, Benjamin. Behold, the multitude was dispersing here. And Saul said to the people with him, Count and see what has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor were not there. This is interesting to me. I, I, I got to make sure I avoid these, all these side comments. But all of a sudden, there's great activity, and Saul deduces this military activity. Somebody's running. Hey, who's missing from the military camp? Because some Jew caused this. Some Jew, I'm yelling here, I shouldn't do that. Some, someone in our military camp has attacked the Philistines and causing them to scatter. Ahijah, who's missing? Jonathan and his armor bearer are missing. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. And Saul and all the people were with him rallied and went into battle. Behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow, and there was great confusion. So Following Jonathan's success in that garrison, Saul rallies the troops, and they continue the scattering of the Philistines. And what's the consequence of that? Verse 21. Now, the Hebrews who had been in the Philistines, with the Philistines before that time, and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites, but with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim, the hills, tunnels, which we read about in the previous chapter, heard the Philistines were fleeing. They too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth Haven. Now, Beth Haven is a, a town in the central mountains of Judah. It's, it's, just, it's just important. They're chasing them into the mountain, which is a great victory. Why did Saul act? Because his son acted. Saul would never have rallied the troops had Jonathan not acted. So what God is really doing in fighting for Israel, because it says the Lord saved Israel that day, is God is responding to the faith of Jonathan, not to the leadership of Saul. Because Saul acts when he sees a victory already in process. He's witnessing a victory already in process, the scattering of the Philistines. So, okay, let's go, let's chase after him. He didn't do that. He didn't cause that. He didn't start that. He doesn't explain that. Jonathan does because the Lord honored his faith and added that little earthquake. And so guess what? Saul's going to take credit. But he does something else, which is just unbelievable. Okay, are you with me so far? I've got three and a half minutes. And the men of Israel, verse 24 now, the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid, why? Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed is the man who eats food until the evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Now, let's talk a little bit about that. 
Verse 14 tells us the people of Israel, these are mainly the soldiers, the army, also those who had joined, come out of the caves and so on. Why are they exhausted and hard-pressed? Because of the vow that Saul made them take. What was the nature of the vow? I don't want anybody to eat any food mm -hmm. until evening. Now, men, just practically think about that. Napoleon said an army moves on the belly of its soldiers. He doesn't mean to crawl. He means if you don't feed your soldiers, they're never going to fight for you. So this is a rash, stupid vow. Nowhere in the Bible does it instruct a king to do that. Well, I'm going to set up a standard. This is Saul speaking. A spiritual standard. Spiritual men fast. Spiritual men in my army fast. And so I'm going to mandate this spiritual fast. Don't you dare eat until sundown. Still got to fight. Still got to chase the Philistines into the mountains of Judah. Well, how's your army gonna how's your army gonna react to that? How's your army gonna be sustained in a long, hard day of battle? <laughs> Not very well. Second thing I want you to notice is in the middle of verse 24, I'm avenged on my enemy. Here's the narcissism. Saul, the self-centeredness of the king. What did Jonathan say earlier in this chapter? They are the uncircumcised Philistines. They're outside the covenant people of God. God, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God will fight for us. If Saul were truly the shepherd king, Truly having the interest of the people at heart, he would say, until we avenge God's enemies, the uncircumcised Philistines. You follow me? That's what he should have said. That's how he should have led. But no, they're my enemies. In God's economy of things, God would say they're my enemies. They're the uncircumcised Philistines that you can be victorious over if you're dependent on me. This is not a stable man. This is not a righteous man. This certainly is not a man of faith leading his people. He forces them to take a Ridiculous vow. That makes no sense in a military context. I'm going to force my men to fast. If you want to know what happens, you got to come back in three weeks. Because we're out of time. Do you want to start on 25? I would love to start on 25. Thank you very much.